Well, it's great to be with you. Yeah. For those of you that are new, back in, <laughs> back in 2001, there was an installation service for me, and uh, we had some good years of ministry here, and it's great to be back. It's been uh, a good while, about a year ago in the summer, I think, that we were here for the uh, picnic, maybe, and uh, good to be with you, good to have uh, the rest of my roving congregation here, Jack Moyer. Reminds me of a story of a, of a fellow who went to pastor a church, and everywhere he went to preach, that, that there was a deacon who was there to, to hear him. And uh, he was kind of flattered by that. And, but after a while, he thought, you know, does it, i, I got to ask him why he's here all the time. So he said, now, brother, I'm glad you're here, but uh, why are you always here when I preach? And he said, well, I've always heard that every preacher has one good sermon in him, and I'm going to be there when you <laughs> preach it. <laughs> and uh, good to have Glenn and Kathy right behind Jack and Sarah. And uh, for those of you also that are new, Jack, raise your hand, Jack. Jack is the director of uh, the church camp that this church participates with. And uh, next week, there will be a camp presentation. <laughs> How fortuitous, uh, yes. the Mallory's will be here, so we look forward to that every year. And Glenn and Kathy were the ones who came and um, took us to lunch and said, we think you should come and be our pastor, and uh, now we've both moved on to other things, so, uh, so good to have you guys here. I, I, I do want to encourage you just a little bit in a very backhanded way, okay, and, and, and the encouragement is this. See, and for those of you, again, that are new, my job now is to minister to all of our network churches in the Northwest, the Baptist Network Northwest. We have about 80 churches, and we do ministry together, and we encourage each other. And when a church doesn't have a pastor, or when their pastor leaves, uh, very often those, uh, those men that are in leadership will call me to come meet with them and give them some guidance, because thankfully, church uh, pastoral transitions don't happen very often. And so it's not something people are good at. And, and I'm not saying your guys are bad at it or anybody else. It's, a, it's like, what do we do? And, uh, and, and, some of, and some men who happen to be in leadership maybe have never been through a pastoral transition process. And so they'll reach out and I'll go meet with them, maybe speak to the church. And, and uh, you know, um, I'm going to be at a church next week that I've been regularly communicating with as they work through this process. Here's one of the things that I've learned, and this is the backhanded uh, compliment. All pastoral transitions are challenging, okay? And, and the compliment to you is you've had some difficulty, but it's normal, okay? Sometimes you think, oh, I'm the only person that's having this problem, or my church is the only one that's having these difficulties. I guarantee you that is not true. Some, every pastoral transition is a challenge, and some of them are, are, um, come out of not good circumstances. In other words, our transition here, I believe, was a positive one, but there are pastoral transitions that are not positive, sometimes because of sin, sometimes because of selfishness, a variety of reasons. Sometimes a man has to retire because he's come on ill health. There's all kinds of reasons, but the time in between is always a challenge, but the good news is, James chapter 1 says, God wants to use difficulty in our life to grow us up. 
And so we welcome his challenges and we work through them and the Lord blesses and eventually a very good man like Kyle Decker comes to be your pastor. And uh, I was very excited to be here today to help inaugurate this new era and I'll be very excited to come back and uh, inaugurate that new era when it, when it can be scheduled, when we can make that happen. Um, I, I will tell you one thing about the Baptist Network Northwest to give you an idea of what we're doing right now. And uh, I'll just give you one little snippet about our trip to Africa, which happened in November and December. Um, we just um, approved a missionary pastoral intern for uh, the Grandview Church. Tony Sanchez has been planting a church there. A number of you have been to that church. Uh, we went over and rebuilt their bathrooms years ago. Other churches have come along and done other things for them. There are some churches who come every summer and do ministry with them. Um, Tony Sanchez is planting a Hispanic church in a town that is approximately 90% Hispanic uh, or Spanish language people, and he's doing a great job. Well, now a young man, the son of the pastor of his home church, has graduated from seminary. He's been through an internship elsewhere, and he wants to go work with Tony. And we're very excited about that because Tony's never been a pastor. He's a great evangelist. He's a great children's worker, but he's never been a pastor. And he didn't have the, the benefit of this young man uh, growing up in a pastor's home and seeing the church and, and going to seminary and all of that. And so this young man who, frankly... If I could be as crass as to say he's as white as you and I and doesn't speak Spanish, wants to go to Grandview. This was not his last option. This was his first choice. And uh, he's been to Grandview. He's worked with Tony. He's looking forward to it. And we're looking forward to him going. Uh, and what we've done is, is called him for a one-year internship. We're funding the majority out of, out of the funds that God has blessed us with in the BNN. Other churches will be picking up some of his support. He's a single guy. We're looking for a wife for him in addition to <laughs> missionary support. He, he's kind of, a, he's kind of a, a geek kind of guy, kind of a nerd, okay? But he knows his theology really well. So if, if you're that kind of gal, we'd love, to, <laughs> we'd love to match you up. And I'm not joking. <laughs> Uh, maybe we should send him to Camp Gilead to work. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, seriously, he's excited to go over there and just come alongside Tony and learn what he can learn and give what he can give. And uh, we're excited to help him do that. So that's, that's just the, that's, you know, we're, we're in the process of planting that church. We heavily support that church out of our network funds. We help Tony come. We're helping Andrew to come. We're supporting him. That's just an idea of one of the things that we do in the Baptist Network Northwest. And my job as the, as the senior leader is to coordinate amongst other leaders and, and managers and, and the way that we get those things done. It was our privilege to go to Africa uh, right after, day after Thanksgiving, Sue and I took off, went to Togo, uh, back where Tim and Esther used to serve um, in, in more of the, the uh, southern part of the country. The hospital that Ben Sutton went to work on is in the northern part of the country. There's also a hospital, they call it the south, I'd call it the middle of the country. We were there, and uh, my job this time, um, last time we were there to minister to the missionaries, this time I was there to teach a Bible class for two weeks 
to the nursing students. If you remember Sharon Rahilly, who has come here and is in the, you know, every, they're in, this is about class number seven or eight of nurses that they've trained. They, they do train 20 nurses at a time, put them through an RN program, and uh, they also teach them the Bible because they want them to be mature servants in the hospital, and they also want them to be able to help others uh, in their walk with the Lord who, might, who they might engage as a patient. And so it was our privilege to be there for a couple of weeks. Sue did some things with the missionary wives and the missionary girls, and uh, I spoke at a couple of churches, and, and uh, we did get up to the Northern Hospital to see it, and I'm happy to report that uh, all of the electrical seems to work good, so... Uh, Ben's not here today, so be sure to say thank you to Ben for that, but uh, uh, I appreciate someone here in this church who paid for our airfare to go over there. Other people helped with other parts of that expense, and, uh, and about the third day as I was teaching, uh, teaching Christian life, teaching the Christian life basically out of 2 Peter 1, 1 Corinthians 13, other passages like that, and just talking about a principled approach to the Christian life. The translator turned to me, who's a 40-year-old guy who's also an associate pastor at a church, and he said, this is what we need in our churches. And uh, tentatively, um, there is a plan for myself and, and my wife and perhaps uh, one or two other pastors to go back and do a short pastor's conference, a short church conference, and also a conference for the workers in the hospital, and that'll be next January. So it's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to serve the body of Christ on a, on a broader level, uh, something different every week, and uh, a lot of different things in between as well. So, And because of that, I come prepared with all kinds of sermon notes. So if it's an installation, I'm ready to go. If it's not an installation, I'm ready to go. So open your Bibles to Matthew 28, and I want to share something with you today that I think will help you as you inaugurate this new era of ministry. Um, it won't surprise you to know that uh, we bought a house built in the 70s in a wonderful old neighborhood. I have trees in my yard so big, there's probably enough lumber in that one tree to build a house. I'd love to get rid of it, but I don't have 6,000 bucks floating around. But we're remodeling in the house. Shocker. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we're, the, our, our primary project is the kitchen. It's it really, uh, you know, like the cabinets were made by a, a, home, a home builder who wasn't too good at it. And uh, so we're redoing the kitchen completely. So we've been out shopping for the appliances from the time we moved. We're kind of looking at all the Home Depots and Lowe's and all those places. And we looked at refrigerators. I don't know how. We, we must have looked at every kind of refrigerator made. You know, we got to get just the right features in our refrigerator. And so finally, we were at Lowe's one day, and, you know, the light shone from heaven, and the, the trumpet sounded, this is the refrigerator we want. We looked at it, and uh, we said, okay, and gave them our credit card, and scheduled it to be uh, brought home. You know, they don't never have them in stock, and so here they go. So one day, here comes this truck, and these two big burly dudes are going to offload our refrigerator. And I went outside, and I looked at it up on the, you know, the, the uh, loading dock thing, the, you know, the, the, the gate, and I thought, holy smokes, that's big. It turns out when they display the refrigerators, it's a big wall of refrigerators, and all you see is the front. 
And so we opened it up. We thought, yeah, this, this looks great. This has the features we want. Praise the Lord. But we didn't pull it out and look at the gargantuan size of the thing. It's 36 by 36. So these guys come, and of course, why would I measure the front door before we bought the refrigerator? <laughs> so they come, and they, they measure, and they measure, and they look. There is not a door on my house with a 36-inch opening. Or rather, I should say, there didn't used to be a door <laughs> on my house. Here's the refrigerator. What are we going to do? You know, and it was in the summertime. And so I said, just a minute. I went over to the garage. I opened up the drawer. I got out the sawzall. And I went back and I went <laughs> like that. And these guys are going, <laughs> and I just tore the frame right off the, uh, off the deal. And then I had about a 38-inch opening. And they got the refrigerator in and we got a new front door that day. It was a nice, wide opening. God claims that he has made a nice, wide opening for the ministry of Christ in the world. And he tells us about that in Revelation chapter 3. And I'd invite you to open your Bibles there if you haven't. Revelation 3. It's not hard to look at our world and think that there isn't a nice wide opening for the ministry. The government in China has just said they are now going to enforce the rules on churches in China. They've had rules, but they've been lax on them for about 15 years. They've been gradually relaxing. And for some reason now they've said, we're going we're gonna to tighten this up. And we're not only going to go after churches, we're going to go after people who own buildings that churches meet in, and so on and so forth. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's four steps backward. And we say, well, that doesn't look like a wide open door for ministry. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. I have set before you an open door, the open door of ministry, and no one can shut it. Christ says that the opportunity to do his work in the world is an open door, which no one can shut. The door is wide open, but the question is, what is required of those who would walk through the open door and join his disciple-making mission? See, there's no doubt the door is open. You can, you can go to places like Togo, and they're starting churches, and they're leading people to the Lord through those hospitals and other means as well. There are opportunities to reach people for the Lord, but the question is, if it doesn't seem like disciples are being made, and if it's not God's fault for letting the door come closed, then what do we have to do to walk through the door? What do we have to do to walk through that door? Well, turn with me to Matthew 28. And uh, look, let's look at a passage that's very familiar. Matthew 28, verse 19. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And if we backed up to verse 18, we'd see these more words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Christ says the opportunity to do his work is an open door, but what is required of us if we're gonna do this? First of all, walking through the open door of ministry requires accepting the mission. In Matthew 28, he says, the authority has been given to me to send you to do the mission. In other words, he's not uh, taking something on himself. He didn't create this himself. He has been given the authority by God and he is urging you to go out and make disciples. He has given us a mission to do. When I was in Seattle, I was part of a disaster team that would go out on, on disasters like the one in Texas with all the floods and, and all of that. And we would be called by the federal government at a certain, whatever time they made their decision, let's say it's eight in the morning and they decided we're gonna send Seattle One down there and they would call us and they would say, have all your gear and all your team ready at five o'clock at McCord Air Force Base or something like that. And so the team leaders would say, okay, we'll be there. And then they would page all of us and say, we're going on this mission you need to be here by one o'clock so we can load equipment or whatever the time schedule is. And they essentially said, uh, I mean, we had, I don't know how many, we must have had 70 people on the team. Maybe we only needed 30 to go on the mission. So they put this out and basically everybody who can go would go. And some people would say, well, I can't get off work or you know, whatever the case may be. So they put out a call and we would choose if we were gonna take the mission or not. Jesus put out the call for disciples makers, but his mission isn't optional. We treat it that way. Sometimes, sometimes we think the pastor is the one who's supposed to do the mission. We're gonna hire us a pastor because we can't be a church without a pastor. And when we get a pastor, everything's gonna be fine. And we get the pastor and we go, The mission is given to all Christians. We could look at many places throughout the scripture. Uh, one of those, uh, if, if you need it, you know, some, I, I've had a man tell me this passage of scripture does not apply to us. It only applied to those 11 and, who were gathered there together and then the 12th who was picked up in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Well, what about this passage of scripture where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church? He's not writing to the apostles. And he says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. I love the use of the word reconciliation here because it refers all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were close with God. They would talk with God and walk with God. And they had a great relationship. We don't know how long that lasted. We don't know how long it was until they sinned. But when they sinned, the relationship was the opposite. They went and hid. They were estranged from God. They were distanced from God. 
And that distance was never fully closed until Christ died on the cross, because the book of Hebrews tells us that all of the sins past were forgiven, as well of the sins future. And when Christ died, he made it possible that our sins could be removed so that we could come full face right, right into the throne room of God and be reconciled to God. Friend, if you feel distant from God today, you might be distant. Until you believe in Christ as your Savior, there is no closeness with God. The wonderful news that we have is you can be reconciled to God, and we find that, that God was doing that in Christ, and Paul says, now we are the ambassadors for Christ. Christ left the earth physically, and he left us in his place, and we are to plead with other people to be reconciled to God. That's the mission for us, to ask people to be, to be reconciled to God. You know who that is? Tom Cruise on Mission Impossible. And some of you would remember the other fellow whose name I can't remember from back in the original days of Mission Impossible, Mr. Phelps. They always called him Mr. Phelps. Peter Graves. Peter Graves, Mr. Phelps. Mr. Phelps would get an audio recording on two reels. For those of you that are young, Google it. Uh, okay. But the same thing happened. A voice would say, your mission should you choose to take it? And this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Okay. They didn't have to take the mission. Okay. But the mission was important. It was imperative. God has opened the door of ministry and commanded us to walk through it. Not to walk through it is to disobey. But we still have to choose to walk through. He is not going to come down and treat us like a parent of a two-year-old who grabs us by the back of the neck and forces us out the door. He's not going to do that. Oh, he might bring some challenges to our life to wake us up. And, and, you know, but ultimately, he says, Christian, I've given you this mission. Now, will you accept it? Will you go on it? Will you take it? Will you move forward? As you enter a new era of ministry, the thing that will make it great is if every single person who's a part of this church accepts that mission and embraces that mission and sees Pastor Kyle as the Mr. Phelps of that team, the guy who's going to lead the team in the mission. We've got to accept the mission if we're going to be, if we're going to walk through that wide open door. Number two, walking through the open door of ministry requires confidence in the effectiveness of the mission. Look at Matthew 28, uh, 20. I think I have it here. He says, lo, I am with you always. And that translation is used by the New King James, the King James, and the New American Standard. In the NIV, it uses the word, surely I am with you. And uh, this is probably the intent of the word. And the reason is this. Um, the ESV uses the word behold. 
literally, Jesus is saying this. Do you see this truth? Uh, I, I, I shared this sermon with a church which has a former Greek professor. <laughs> and uh, I, I realized that while I was preparing, and I said, well, I, I believe this is what the Bible says, so I'm going to teach it. And he, and he came up to me afterwards, and he says, nobody ever picks up on that. I said, yes. <laughs> Thank the Lord. You know, I never picked up on it until I was studying this a few months ago in, in some more depth. The truth is this, Christian. Th this little word is actually a particle of a word for seeing, and what God is calling us to do is to see the reality that God is always with us. You see, you know, right now you would look around and you say, well, you know, I, I don't see God. I understand that. I, I am the same way. But sometimes we forget that he's always here even though he is always here. One time the state patrol asked me to deliver a, a notification of a death to a, a home in a high crime area of, of Seattle. And, and uh, so I said, well, I'm not going until I get a uniformed officer to go with me. Because they will not believe me. I'm just a guy walking up the door going, excuse me, somebody in your household is not coming home tonight. Um, but here's the uniformed police officer. He's, he's giving credibility to what I'm gonna say. Folks, we need to understand that God is always with us. We are never alone in doing the work of the Lord. Christ is with us, and he has a stake in the outcome of our work. It may or may not turn out like you want it to, to turn out, but it will always turn out as Christ desires and so you need to just go. You need to follow the Matthew 28 command. Go and make disciples, believing that he is with you. I, I think there's a principle here in James 1 that, that what should help us. And he's talking about trials and asking for help in trials, but the principle applies more broadly. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea and tossed by the wind. Do you believe that God is going to empower the ministry of making disciples? Do you believe God is actually going to make disciples through your personal life as well as the life of this church? See, when we don't believe in the effectiveness of the mission, we don't try to accomplish the mission. Instead of that, we make excuses. Well, that won't work. And, and we honestly, we look at some methodology and we say, well, why would that make disciples? And you know, truth be told, the methodology might not be that great. Oh, we look at it and say, we can't do that. It's too hard, it's too big, it's too different, it's too whatever. Uh, uh, you know, uh, nobody's going to listen. You know, humanly, those are all rational, reasonable um, responses to the menace, to, to what God has called us to do. 
but they aren't reasonable if we set, stand back and say, wait a minute, God is in this. This is God's word that I am sharing through my words and through my life. He has an interest in making disciples. Why would I doubt it? You know, Facebook is a, is a wonderful thing if you handle it well. I got a request from somebody, if I named them, uh, Leanna, you would know them from our days at Nooksack. You know, a friend request. Oh, man. You know, uh, you get a friend request, and you never know what people are going to post, and it's going to show up on your, on your news feed or whatever. And, and this is one of those guys who I would think, oh, boy, I don't know what this guy's going to have on his Facebook page. But I, you know, being a public figure for me to reject somebody's friend request is kind of harsh. And so, okay. Well, lo and behold, this guy is posting these really Christian sayings and, and, and pictures and, and everything is positive. Everything is positive. And I think, who are you and what have you done with this person? Well, I called him up. Uh, had a little had a little bit of a business um, involvement potential. Um, guy has a certain business. Now I called him up to talk about that. But then I said, "Hey, first of all, I want to know when you became a Christian." And he says, "Well, in your youth group, Dave, <laughs> man, I would have remembered if that happened." And he went to a certain event, and he says, "You remember we did this and this and this." And honestly, I don't remember exactly that we did that. But he was there when we did stuff, and we did stuff like that, so I thought, well, it must be, and I must have shared the gospel. I don't remember it, and God put that seed in his heart. Now, I'll tell you, it didn't bear fruit until recent days. If you'd have told me back then, tonight, so-and-so is going to become a Christian, I would have said, well, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, we're that way. We look at some folks and we say, well, boy, they'd make a great Christian. And we look at other people and say, well, I don't know. And you know what our problem is? We don't believe in God enough. Is anything too hard for God? I think that's in the Bible somewhere. And we have got to have that mentality. We've got to believe in this mission so much that we say, God can do anything. You know, one of the people who drove us around in Togo, the, the first person who drove us, they, they hire the nationals to do a variety of things. One of them is to drive, and if you ever drove in Togo, you would know why. Especially for people like me who come in, I would not want to drive on those roads. And uh, so we're talking along, and, and this guy says he used to, the word they use is fetisher. Um, we would commonly use the word witch doctor. This guy was a fetisher. And uh, he was kind of giving his testimony a little bit. And, and back here was another national, one of the nurses who had been previously trained, and she pipes up and says, I used to be afraid of you when he was a fetisher. Because he could make stuff happen. And he left it all behind and put his faith in Christ. And now he's serving the Lord. Is anything too hard for God? No. But we've got to see that. We've got to, you know, lo, I am with you. See that I am with you. Number three, if we're going to walk through the door, 
of effective ministry, we've got to adapt our life and ministry to accomplish God's work. Listen to these uh, words from the Apostle Paul. For though I am free from all men, in other words, I don't owe any man anything, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win people to Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul for a minute, and if you're not real familiar with his history, I'll give you a little bit of it. He was a Jewish man raised by a strictly Jewish family who raised him to follow all of the rules, and I don't know if they encouraged him to become a Pharisee or if that was just his desire, but he went to the equivalent of what we would call a a Bible college of his day, and he learned the Old Testament, but he also learned the ways of the Pharisees. You know, those people who are always criticizing Christ, they were straining at all these, they had all kinds of rules added on to the rules that God gave. And in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, my righteousness in accordance with the law was blameless. My way as a Pharisee was perfect. In other words, now, I doubt that he followed all of the laws perfectly, but humanly, to his human reputation, He was known as a perfect follower of God from the Old Testament perspective, from the Pharisees' perspective. So he grew up in all those Jewish traditions. And then he became a Christian, and he became called to preach the gospel to the non-Jews. So here's my question. When he became a Christian, was he happy to be free of the Jewish regulations? Was it like, I can eat bacon! I don't have to worry about washing my hands a certain way before I eat. I don't have to worry about spitting on Sunday so that I'm making dirt, so that I'm farming, so that I'm breaking the commandment on observing the Sabbath. I mean, all these rules. Was he happy to be free of it? I can imagine he was. And so when he would go to do ministry with the Gentiles and they had a big pork roast for Sunday dinner, he'd go, yeah. But I could also imagine that he grew up in that way, and like all of us, we love the way we were raised. Anybody here from the South, Jerry? Yeah. (laughs) Some things in the South you don't have in the Northwest, aren't there? Some foods, some ways, some ways of thinking, ways of talking. I can imagine that, that he grew up and he loved the way he was raised, but he didn't love the, the extremes of it, so he was glad to be a believer in Christ. So maybe he loved all of those rituals. Maybe he loved uh, the Passover time and the Passover feast. Maybe he loved the festivals every so often during the year. And so when he would go with the Gentiles, they would say, we're having pork roast for lunch, and he thought, oh, shoot. Man, I just don't have a taste for that. Okay. Here's my point, class. There were times when he had to act like a Gentile. Now, he makes a very careful distinction here. He said, I didn't give up the law of Christ. In other words, he didn't just live in sin. 
But there were times when he gave up all of that Old Testament regulation and he lived like a Gentile. And then there were times when he had to live like a Jew. One way or the other was a sacrifice for him. Whichever way it was going, he had to make personal sacrifices to carry on the Lord's work. A couple of missionary examples come to my mind, um, one of which we saw changing before our very eyes in Togo. We were there about 12 years ago before this last trip, and very strict um, social uh, rule in the society. Not, not, nothing that was generated by missionaries, but it was in the society. In Togo, all the women wear dresses down to about their mid-ankle. That's considered modest. Only an immodest woman would wear pants, and really immodest if she wears shorts. Okay? And so the missionaries voluntarily adopted that same rule. Okay? If you go up north in Togo, where, where it is a Muslim area, you have to wear a skirt all the way down to the, so that your ankles don't show. Okay? And you have to have a shirt that comes over the shoulder in 120 degrees. Okay? And the missionaries voluntarily adopt those social, social mores because they don't want to give an offense that is unnecessary. If you were to go to another country that I won't name where there is a Muslim majority, Muslims don't eat pork, like the Jews don't eat pork. And the Hindus, which are the, the next major group in that country, they don't eat cows. So you take pork out of your diet and beef out of your diet. Our missionary that's there says, we eat a lot of chicken. And having been there, I can attest to you, they eat a lot of chicken. And of course, they don't get chicken that much either. They eat a lot of other stuff that's poorer. But they make these choices on purpose, and we can look at those choices and say they aren't, they aren't huge choices. We look at it and say, well, what's the big deal? You don't get to eat beef and pork. Okay? You take bacon out of your diet and beef and all of that. I remember a day when my son-in-law said, Halloween is the devil's night, and we need to take it back from him. And I thought, I don't want to do anything on Halloween. I didn't. But I just came back from a class in which they were teaching me this. You need to think like an unbeliever if you're going to reach out to unbelievers. And I said, okay. And he led the charge with some other people, and this great Halloween event was created. And we all knew that what we were doing was, none of us loved Halloween, and we weren't celebrating Halloween. We don't even use the word Halloween. I've used it more times now than we ever did in the years past. But it was on Halloween night. We all knew that what we were doing was doing an outreach to connect with unbelievers, to establish our reputation in the community. And so that was cool, and everybody got behind it. After about three years, a, a, a fair number of people were going, why are we doing something on Halloween? And then we realized, oh, there's new people in the church. They don't understand why we're doing this. And so we got up and said, hey, here's why we're doing this. We're trying to connect and trying to serve in a way that people will receive. And it, and it has created a great reputation for the church and the community. Okay. And then people went, oh, okay, I get that. I get that. What about other things that you may or may not get? 
And in mentioning these things, I will not tell you my position. I do not mean to infer a position. I mean to challenge you to think about people with tattoos. Those of you who are against them are going to have to rethink that because the the youth pastor at Grace Baptist in Bellingham got a full sleeve coming all the way up to here, and he's a wonderful young man. But you know, when you see somebody coming in the door and they got tattoos and things poked in here and there, is your immediate reaction, oh, or is your immediate reaction, doesn't matter what I like. What matters is God needs to reach that person. Some people like to dress up for church. Some people like to wear a suit and tie. I was raised wearing a suit and tie from the time I was that big. Some people don't like wearing a suit and tie. Some people like wearing a hat to church. Ooh. And I'm not talking about women. Some people like contemporary music. Some people like old music, which is just contemporary music from when it was made. (laughs) Think about it. Some people like the church to look like a church. Some people don't want it to look like a church. Some people want stained glass. Some people don't. Some people want a small group. Some people want a big group. Some people want to talk about politics. And since I'm not the pastor, (laughs) if your politics are so important that you can't be quiet and talk to people about the Lord first, your heart's in the wrong place. Because Donald Trump is not going to save this country. And neither will another Barack Obama or you name the guy or gal. It ain't going to happen, folks. Our faith needs to be in Christ, and we need to care for people so much that we just put that aside. Oh, have your vote, walk your protest, do whatever you're going to do, but you put that aside and say, I'm going to reach that person for Christ, even though they, they're weird, they're fill in the political party name. One of our neighbors, a lovely older woman, came bouncing out of her house and gave us a welcoming gift about this tall. Bottle of white wine. I'm sorry we don't drink. No. Well, thank you. And she says, do you drink? We said, well, we really don't, but we'll use it in cooking. She says, I don't drink either. My kids bring it and leave it at the house. And... <laughs> we gave it to one of our relatives who can put it to use. Look, do you care enough for those who don't know the Lord to modify your manner of life where you can. There are areas where we can't modify our beliefs, but we need to look real hard at those things that we hold so dear and say, can I modify, can I let go, can I put aside and reach people for Christ? I believe this is part of what 
Christ meant when he said this, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you've got to let go of the stuff you hold dear and embrace what Christ holds dear and serve him. Cultural adaptation requires personal sacrifice, which is one of the indicators of being a true Christ follower. See, instead of that, what we say is, I don't like this. I'm going to go somewhere where I can find everything that I like. There may be times when you need to do that, but there may be times when you need to say, you know what, I don't like it, but I'm looking at it real hard and I think it's the right thing to do. And I think I'm going to support it, whether it is my personal preference or not. Number four, walking through the open door of ministry means doing what you can where you can. Just after Paul came to faith in Christ, I mean, just within days, God sent a man named Ananias to help Paul move into his Christ-following life. Now, you remember that Paul, I, I told you he was Jewish, he was a Pharisee. Well, what he was doing, if you don't know the story, is he would go out and try to arrest Christians and persecute them and throw them in jail to silence them and, and, and get rid of the movement that we now call Christianity. And in the midst of that... God reached down and went, I'm going to save you. And boom, he came to faith in Christ, but he was blinded. And God sent somebody to remove the blindness and initiate him into ministry. And here's part of that story. And Ananias uh, was the man sent to Paul. He went his way and he entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, I don't believe at all that very many Christians wake up from their salvation and start preaching Christ in a public forum. But the Apostle Paul knew the Old Testament probably better than most Old Testament scholars do today. He spoke the languages as a native speaker. He had been schooled in them. They would study the law over and over, and they would go over these prophecies about the Messiah to come. And so when he finally realized, oh, Christ is the Messiah, everything lined up for him, and so he didn't need to go to seminary. He just went out and started saying, hey, you know all this stuff we've been studying from the Old Testament? This is the guy. That was the nature of his preaching. Paul did what he could where he was. Now, he still needed some time to be educated by God and to receive some of the truth that we call the New Testament, which he penned and wrote, sent on to us. Paul was a unique new believer in the sense that he was prepared already to preach even before he came to faith in Christ. And so he did what he could, and then he went on to do even greater things. None of us were called to do what Paul did. 
No, I have no expectation that a new believer is going to wake up and do that, with a couple of exceptions. If you want to read a really good book on being a Muslim who came to faith in Christ, it's written by a guy named Nabil Qureshi. Can anybody help me out with the title of the book? Anyway, Nabil Qureshi, there's no other author with that name. And uh, you Google it, he's with the Lord now. The Lord took him home through cancer. But here's a guy who had studied the Muslim religion and studied Christianity to try to defeat it. So from the moment he knew Christ the Savior, he was ready to stand up and say, listen, let me tell you why you should believe in Jesus. Okay? That's an exceptional case. Okay? I, I'm not trying to say you all need to be preachers when you wake up from believing in Christ the Savior. But Paul did what he could where he was. None of us are called to do what Paul did, but we are all called to do what we can where we can. And this passage of Scripture tells us about that. God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints. That's you, if you don't know, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. That's you. Every ligament, literally. By what every part does. We all grow up together. Every single believer, every single believer in Christ can serve Christ in some way. There are, there are two senses in which we serve Christ. Number one, as an individual person, wherever we go, we're, we're serving Christ. We should be. But then there is also this cumulative sense where we get together and we do some things together and we serve Christ in a unique way together. Sue and I stayed with a husband and wife in one of our churches who repeatedly said to us, I'm just a housewife. I'm just a housewife. And, uh, but she teaches Sunday school, taught Sunday school for 40 years in a church that if you looked at it, You'd say, I don't think I'm going to go there. It, it looks worse than ours used to before we fixed it up. Way worse. And it's in a bad part of town, in a bad town. But she and her husband feel called to be there, so they're there, and she teaches Sunday school every week. And once in a while, the Lord saves somebody. She said, I had a boy come for Sunday school the first time, and... And she just cared for him like she cares for every, every child. And she, I get the impression she loves every child that comes to her junior Sunday school class. And the boy only came once because when his Buddhist parents found out he went to a Baptist church, they said, no, you are not going back to church. Subsequent to that, uh, in a relatively short period of time, the father murdered the mother and attempted to murder the son. The son called 911 and said, my dad murdered my mom, and he murdered me too. I mean, he didn't understand that he, you know, the word. And then the dad took off. And so, boy, it's on the news. The police responding, the fire's responding. And uh, they went out and found the dad somewhere and arrested him, of course. They rushed the boy into the hospital. He survived. And... Uh, because there were no other relatives, an aunt and an uncle came from Florida up there to take care of him. Well, lo and behold, the, the aunt and the uncle are believers. And uh, this, this Sunday school teacher, I'm just a housewife who teaches Sunday school. 
She saw this on the news, and one of her friends called up and said, hey, I think that's so-and-so. And the kid just lived down the street somewhere. And she thought, well, I need to go see him. So the kid's been in her Sunday school class one time. So she goes to the hospital, and she tells the, gives the nurse, I'm Mrs. So-and-so, and hands it to him, and the parents look at it, and they said, Mrs. So-and-so, the Sunday school teacher, you don't have a Sunday school teacher. You, you don't go to church. And he remembered her name. And he said, oh, yes, yes, Mrs. So-and-so, that's my Sunday school teacher. And so she went in and commiserated with the parents. And, and uh, when the boy got out of, of the hospital, um, they were there to do all the legal stuff to take, you know, uh, adopt or, you know, foster care him, whatever had to be done and work through all of that. And so they brought him to church, to her church. And he came to her Sunday school class. And she shared the gospel like she always does, but she felt like she shouldn't push him because she thought that might be manipulation. And, uh, but she shared the gospel, and you know, Sunday school went on in church, and he goes out with the parents, and, and he gets in the car, and he says, we can't leave here till I believe in Christ. And so he did. They, they knew the gospel. They shared it with him. He believed in Christ. Fast forward about 16 years. The kid's been on Oprah. He shared his story. The firefighter and the police officer that responded were Christians. He is still living for the Lord as a young adult. He has forgiven his father. He has personally forgiven his father. I'm just a Sunday school teacher who does what she can where she can. Are you walking through God's open door? You don't know that kid and that family. He's not going to come to the Lord. Oh, yes, he is. But he won't come to the Lord unless you walk through the door of ministry to him. I just want to challenge you as you start a new era of ministry to take up, to take up this mission and say, God, regardless of how involved or lack of involvement there's been in my part in the past, I'm going to go forward with you and I am going to work with Pastor Kyle and with the other leaders and with the other servants and we are going to reach people for the Lord because you've opened the door and no man can close it. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. We look at ourselves sometimes and we think, well, you know, well, no big deal that I came to faith in you. And yet it, it was, it was far bigger than we understood. Father, we're reminded today that the door is open, the call has been given, but we've got to walk through it. May that happen here more than it's happened in years, Father. May this be a great new era of ministry, a great stepping forward. I pray that you'll raise Pastor Kyle up very quickly Allow him to get back to the work that he wants to do here. Build a great relationship between this pastor and church. And may they do great things for you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.